G'day and welcome to the Leading Conversation with me, Tom Dawson Squibb, a teaming and performance coach and former South African Sevens rugby captain and now entrepreneur, Kyle Brown. We're really enjoying the feedback we're getting on our Instagram page, the.leadingconversation, as well as through our personal LinkedIn pages. We'd really like to take some of your questions and use them, so feel free to send them our way and be involved in the podcast. We're in the process of setting up an easy, even easier way for you to interact, so please be patient with us while we get that set up. Today we're joined by a real pioneer in the world of coaching, Paddy Upton. Paddy started as a fitness trainer um, for the South African cricket side, but then found his calling in the world of coaching. He went on to work with some of the greats of the game as a leadership and performance coach, winning a World Cup with India and working very successfully with the Proteas. Paddy struck up a strong working relationship with Gary Kirsten and they had great success with the teams that they partnered on. Paddy then went on to spread his wings, stepping up into the head coaching role with numerous T20 sides around the world and tasted some success with them. Paddy's an innovator, pioneer and empowerer who doesn't choose to do things the way they've always been done, but rather to find a way based on research and intuition that takes people to the next level. In this episode, Paddy shares about player-centered coaching, what his secret is in knowing what to say to people when, what competitive advantages still exist for teams right now, and what to do with dickheads in a team. I admire Paddy's work, and I think anyone who's willing to stick their neck out like he does will make for a fascinating conversation. Please do enjoy and share with your friends and colleagues. Great. Um, Right, so here we are. Thank you, um, Carl. Nice to see you again. Did you have a Merry Christmas? Good morning, Thomas. Uh, Yeah, a lot quieter Christmas, a a COVID-restricted Christmas that was, I think, initially quite a number of family members that was cut down because of a contact situation. Uh, But, you know, merry and festive and lacquer. It was good to spend time with some family again. Awesome, awesome. And here we are, uh, Paddy, lovely to see you, uh, Paddy Upton. Um, difficult to, to describe you in a simple way, speaker, coach, um, maybe philosopher to some people, but certainly someone who's, who's trailblazed uh, in the world of sports and in business. Uh, thanks so much for giving up your time to be with us. Yeah, awesome to be seeing you guys and chatting to you. Um during the festive season, they've closed the beaches, so we might as well hop onto a Zoom call and have a conversation. <laughs> exactly. I know you. I know surfing's probably your number one priority, but you do like quality conversations. So hopefully, this is not miles behind. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, surfing happens in between to refresh and get ready for the conversations. Absolutely. No, well, Patty, thanks so much. It's uh, it's wonderful to be here. I think, as I said, you know, you've been someone who really has trailblazed in in the world of of sports specifically, but in other areas as well, you know, and we'll ask you about it, having been an SNC, or a, a player, an SNC coach, as they would call it, a performance or strategic leadership coach or mental skills coach, and then a head coach as well. So you've, you've, you've worn different hats in the world of sports um, and we look forward to, to diving into it. So thank you very much uh, for your time. Paddy, we always, always start with the, the same question on this series, which is, what is the value that you most love being around? What is the value that you most love being around? The value that I most love being around, um, for me, it's credibility. I, without thinking about it, that sort of top of mind comes to me. It's credibility, which stands in contrast to the opposite of bullshit. 
I like that. I like that. So, so I was going to ask what you, yeah. Yeah, but it's so, it's so interesting that you actually start with credibility, Paddy. It's, it's incredible because like the, the, the first thing I was thinking about when you were talking about um, Paddy's CV was how he moved from position to position and, and different spaces in the sporting environment. And the, the, the one thing that strikes me there is how on earth do you have credibility or how do you have the confidence to have credibility? I don't know if it's a perceived thing that, that we all worry about, but credibility as you move from being you know, so sought after in one department, then all of a sudden you something else and then something else. And you know how most people would struggle with credibility in, that, in, that, uh, in those transitions. What was your way and you know, what was your best way in developing that kind of credibility? I guess it's a good question, Kyle. It's it's probably because when I went and in, stepped into each new role, I didn't arrive with the credibility. So if, uh, the typical example, so I end up being head coach in a whole lot of professional T20 leagues, cricket leagues, and yet I certainly don't have the playing credentials that line up with being that head coach. And I, 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 I don't, um, I don't come across, and I don't profess to be the expert strategist, strategist or tactician. So I don't arrive with any credibility. If I try to bullshit my way to that uh, with people that I actually do know what I'm talking about in areas where I know I don't know what I'm talking about, straight away I'll lose credibility. So, I mean, one of the ways I got it was to, I think it's, it's possibly linked to the fact that I've, you know, got degrees from four different universities that before I stepped into something, I would do a whole lot of research and a whole lot of work and make sure that, I do know at least what the latest and the best thinking is. I might not have the experience, but I know what the latest and the best thinking is. And then I spend the time in that environment to really understand it so that when I do have something to say, I I know it's really well-founded. And I guess one of the things I've also done is having written two master's theses and a PhD thesis. And Tim Noakes was my supervisor for uh, two of the three of those. I would I got so used to when I make a statement, I would use Tim Noakes as the filter to go, is this going to carry water and be valid and a credible statement? Because it, in my thesis, every time I wrote something and it wasn't well founded, Tim Noakes would just put a red line through it and said, where did you, where did you get this? Uh, please explain this. So I really, through that process of the years of writing, came to learn that when I say something in a professional environment it needs to be very well thought through very well founded um, so that people can't poke holes in it and say well actually hang on you don't know what you're speaking about so not being the expert it's made me work really really hard to make sure when I say something that um, it's well founded and it's and it's interesting Paddy is that you have also set your stall out on being different and progressive so you speak about credibility and going to spaces where you know you, you you've never just walked in as the sort of the manier so to speak yeah. but you but you and you've decided to be different and progressive what made you what made you want to be that um when you maybe could have taken a more simpler more conventional route um tom it, it was actually my experience so if i were to sort of pick some key moments you know one if i look back to in the 1990s when i was a fitness trainer with snc they call it these days with the the proteus cricket side um we had probably the most progressive coach in the world in bob Woolmer. we were the first or the only team in the world of the fitness trainer so we were ahead of the game in that regard and while we were sort of bla- Bob was blazing his trail as a coach, and I was blazing this trail as the first SNC in professional cricket, um, 
I started looking, so what are the other things that we, we're falling short and we're not up to speed with where we could be? You know, for me, what what is happening in international cricket has never been or anywhere is not the benchmark. My question is always, will we be doing the same thing we're doing today in three to five years' time? So that's always been my burning question for 25 years now. Constantly ask myself, will we be doing the same thing in whatever this field is today in three to five years' time that we're doing today? And almost always the answer is no. We probably will be doing new and different things. So my mind naturally just goes to, okay, so what are we going to be doing in three to five years' time? And I now have two choices. I can be a really diligent researcher and put my ear to the ground and listen out to who comes up with whatever the next innovation is. Or I can go, hang on, well, there is a new innovation in the waiting. So let me go out in search of finding what that answer is. And it's not just me. It's the people that are around me and the people I collaborate with and I'm in regular conversations. It's like, let's go and find then what this new thing is going to be. And that's what really interests me. But just to continue doing what everyone else is doing, even if it's the best, to be honest, I get bored very quickly. So, Paddy, then then how... So tried and tested is tried and tested for a reason. And, and people use it over and over again. They have different ways of, of implementing very similar things because it has shown success over time. At a high level, where does the courage come from to step out and try something new and, and try something different? And so, uh, you know, out of the box thinking or, you know, as they say, out of the box thinking yeah. that makes you be so different. So, Kyle, it's, the courage comes from conviction and proof initially. What really gave me the, um, that courage you talk about was in the early 2000s when I did my master's degree in uh, business coaching. It was actually the, I was lucky to be on the first ever two-year master's degree in business coaching that was offered worldwide at the beginning of the time when this business and executive coaching started becoming, in fact, at the time, it was the second fastest growing profession in the world behind IT. So I was very lucky, number one, to get my foot in the door early. As I was exposed to, at, through that process, what are the best leaders in the world doing to bring the best out in their people? And it was largely focused in the business context. I was naturally translating things back into the sport context because sport is a business. Um, and the light bulb really went on for me when I came to understand how the leadership landscape was fundamentally changing from what had been 200 years of the Industrial Revolution where the person who rode to the, rose to the position of leadership was the content expert or the strategic, the cleverest person, and they would lead through a process of instructing or telling people what to do from their position of being the content expert. And in that same 200-year period, most people in sports teams and businesses were happy to receive instruction from somebody who had superior knowing or who knew better. The advent of the internet fundamentally changed that. It is now no longer possible to be the expert in anything. Therefore, that command and control method of leadership is is completely redundant. So, well, it's not completely redundant, but as as an exclusive approach, it's redundant. So, my research then in early 2000 was to go and translate and go and understand, okay, so what's happening in in South African cricket and over the last 15 years? And I looked, uh, researched, spoke to the best the most capped players in the country over that time who had played under all 36 coaches. And I wanted to understand what do you you want from coaching or leadership and what are you receiving from your coaches? And when I got that 
feedback back and it was very in-depth it was a very scientifically rigorous study there was plenty of people involved in it it was amazing that what the players wanted from their leaders was what the business world was saying the best leaders are doing to bring the best out in their people in contrast what players were saying they were getting back from their coach was fund was fundamentally different so for me it wasn't okay it was so crystal clear where sport coaching or sport leadership was going to go because it, and at the time the other research that had been done suggested sport was 10 years behind business in terms of innovations around culture people management leadership so actually business the top businesses had already gone there already made the shift and it was obvious to me that sport was going to make the shift research already said the sport was 10 years behind so for me it was like well it didn't it didn't take courage for me to predict and know where sports coaching and leadership was going to be going it was actually it was spelt out in black and white it's just sport hadn't made the change people are selecting coaches uh, hadn't made the change players were still happy to receive instruction because or most players because it absolves them of responsibility of actually thinking for themselves so that's really where I I had the courage to go out and say things need a change. But of course what happened and actually I remember writing in my thesis then saying that there's a significant competitive advantage that now has been exposed or revealed in professional cricket and probably all team sports because the research suggested all team sports worldwide is 10 years behind. And I remember I wrote there I've still got it and I go back to it I said this advantage is probably going to be available for the next 3 to 5 years before other people catch on and they catch up and they move ahead of us. So let's embrace this opportunity to change the way that we are coaching and leading players. Um the change is happening. Uh, all that language now that I was using 2003 is out there. But amazingly that we now are nearly eight, 17 years later and that advantage is still available because there's still so many coaches that have failed to upgrade their coaching software to a more empowering player-centered servant leadership type approach. Um, so that's yeah, a long story, but it wasn't, it wasn't really courage. It was just the insight and I guess the, the courage to stand behind that insight that really kicked me off on this trail of guys, come on, man, we can do things, be much smarter and we can get ahead of the rest if we prepared to take that, that leap of faith. Uh, Paddy, you, you sort of pre-entered the question saying that 17 years later, it's still an advantage. If you were to put your finger on a couple of reasons why there's been this resistance to change, um, what would you say the, the, is the source of that resistance? Um, I'm not sh Okay, so I reckon it's some resistance, Tom, and probably some just uh, people just getting happy and caught stuck in the, the comfort zone of what they, what they know. Um, so I think to some degree, a lot of sports are still run by people who are sports administrators or administrative type people as opposed to really forward-thinking business brains. I think that's one place where sport really is being held back. And I'm speaking generally now, it's not, that's not a, across the board, but we don't have really forward-thinking smart business leaders running sports organizations. Um, so I think that's one thing, the appointment of staff that are allocated for example i mean i've been involved now in a couple of for example coach selection processes um, either in looking at the uh, selection criteria that they're putting out there that they're going to interview or being in interviews and 
if you ran a business like that looking for a new CEO based on that criteria and were those that level of um, competence of people doing the interviewing, you would never pick a half decent CEO because you're just you're not looking for the right things, you're not asking the right questions, and you're not having the right you um, you're not having the smart uh, in investigative minds sitting there in the interview panels. So it's I think it's just a larger case of let's let's not do anything that's going to upset the apple cart. Let's just do things that we know work, the tried and tested stuff yeah. you spoke about earlier, Kyle, because then you know, if you use a trial, tried and tested way of, for example, picking a coach or picking a captain and the coach doesn't work or the captain doesn't work, it's like, it's fine. We did the right process, but it's obviously the wrong person. So we fire them and we try the next coach or we try the next captain and we can blame the coach or the captain. But, you know, we haven't stopped and go, well, actually, is the selection process that led to selecting that person as coach or that person as captain or that person as CEO of the business? Was it a really smart, forward-thinking process that's actually set up with the best possible chance of getting the right person in place? Um, and I think that's where we, we're falling short. We're just stuck in tried and tested old-school um, approaches. But I have been, that said, I have also been involved in some organizations and no organizations that are so forward-thinking. And it's interesting how some of those actually have an, an average team and they go so far ahead of the rest for a short space of time. Paddy, so what, what in, in uh, having now mentioned that you've been involved in both, what are the most identifiable flaws that you've seen in, in uh, sort of poor selection uh, criteria versus some of the most forward-thinking selection criteria, some of the, you know, some of the best mm. that can really bring out the best in the selection process as well as finding the best leader to take forward uh, an organization? So... Yeah, you know, Deville won that. I would like off the top of my head, I would say the ones that end up with not necessarily the picking the right leaders. It's just a, an old school uh, do things as we've always done them, play it safe, tick the boxes, you know, follow the process that people use in the in the last fifteen, twenty, twenty five years. As long as we don't upset the apple card and we just keep doing things the way we've always done them it's that old school or lack of forward thinking that leads to you know the sometimes the obvious choice for coach or captain or leader but not necessarily the right one and compared to um people who you know prepared to come in and rock the boat um and bring in different thinking but that's not different for the sake of different it's different because it's thought through it's understood it's it's being tried and tested in other environments um you know and i think of what comes you know straight away comes to me is a, a team like the sydney thunder cricket team that that you know i went to an interview for the head coach of that team they had in the first three years of the australian big bash league they'd lost 21 out of 22 games it was the worst team in T20 world at the time. And the problem there in the Australian Big Bash League is every team, like most others, gets the same amount of money to get players. But it's not an auction. You actually have to approach players and negotiate for them to come and play in your team. So if you've got a really good team, you can get a player will come and play there for 10 grand less or 10, 10 Aussie grand. But the Sydney Thunder team couldn't actually get players, even if they offered them more money to go and play there, because it was such a mess, that team. And they pulled in a CEO who came from a marketing um, background. He came from outside of Sydney. 
Um, Sydney is a very much an old school, New South Wales, very much an old school environment. And it's all the old school boys with the old school tie. They get all the jobs. And because this was such a mess, no one actually in the, in the cricket in New South Wales wanted that job. So they got this young guy from outside us, a young early 40s, Nick Cummins. And he came in and he upset so many people with so many of the decisions he made. But they were such well-informed, such smart, such forward-thinking decisions. I mean, one of the, one of the things we did in that, at that period, as I said, was the worst T20 team in the world. But we did have two players on that roster at the time when we looked through the roster. One was the Australian national captain. who they In Australia, they say that's the second most important job in Australia behind the prime minister. Michael Clark was on it. And at the time, David Warner was also on that roster. And he was a number one 50 over batsman in the world at the time. And we wanted to build a really aspirational team that play. We wanted players to want to come and play for us. And the conversation, I hadn't even, didn't even have the job yet. It was just an interview. And I said to him, would you be prepared to fire David Warner and Michael Clark from the worst T20 team in the world? Because if you want to build an aspirational team that you want to draw players to want to come and play for, you cannot have these two individuals. Everyone in the cricket world knows what kind of people they are. And nobody in Australia wanted to play under Michael Clark. That's an open secret. Now it's an open secret. At the time, it was a closed secret within the cricket playing world. And at the time, David Warner was not the kind of guy that you really wanted to be part of. And he's not the kind of guy that created a wonderful uh, team environment. And to his credit, you know, he fired these two guys and it was such an unpopular move, but it was the smart move. And fortunately, the next year uh, we won the Australian Big Bash League. So in hindsight, we can turn around and say it was a smart move. But, but maybe even if we never won, at least we started attracting players who wanted to come and play for that franchise and liberated a whole lot of money that um, was being soaked up by two guys who you cannot build a a unified cricket team or sports team around. Sure. I think I think that I think that's I think they call it the no dickhead policy is was was applied. <laughs> no, no, yeah. But Paddy, that's an interesting one because I've had this debate in a lot of sports um environments around labelling players, right? So uh let's take a hooker in rugby. He, he, he's he displays in one game that he or in two games that he that he that he got that he can't throw. Yeah. Now he can't throw for the rest of his career. Yeah. Or a fly half who misses a kick or does something wrong. Now he, he, he's not good under pressure. How do you discern between labeling players correctly, like a Michael yeah. Clark or a David Warner, where you said, actually, we've got to flick them? Or hang on, I, I've got to work with this guy because I'm obviously reading your book. You had a couple of difficult characters as well. Um, this guy's not going anywhere. I've got to actually work with him. He might be a dickhead now, but he might not be a dickhead for yep. the rest of his life. How do you discern between the two? Okay, so it, it's almost two slightly different concepts you mentioned there, Tom. One, I, I agree with you. We are way too quick in the sports world, be it coaches, be it fellow players, be it fans, to label a player who has one or two bad games and we put a label on him and that sticks. And there's really nice research that talks to why we do that in our mind and how that's actually a flawed way of operating. So that really is something, particularly for coaches and selectors, would be great for them to understand how the mind naturally tends to label players and just the flaws in that. So I agree with that. We are too quick. Uh, on the other side, the other thing is is that player who's a really disruptive individual. Um, and the first thing I, I always say about that is we must be careful that the dis our understanding of that person being so disruptive is not actually a our leadership 
shortcoming or inability to deal with a very different or slightly difficult individual. So the first thing when we struggle with a guy, we need to question, is it my leadership inability to deal with someone that I just never come across before and is just different to everyone else I've ever led before. So we need to question ourselves, firstly. Um, Once we've done that and we've explored all avenues of how can I now go and learn, and maybe it's I need to go read, I need to speak to someone, I need to go and get some coaching myself so I can learn how to deal with a really difficult individual because the truth is the super, very often those superstars, those eccentric players are very often, they are different, differently wired. They've got different personalities. And because they're so different, they can see gaps. They can make things happen. They can actually, they are real playmakers are very often different individuals with different personalities. So the ability to work with them actually and get the best out of them is unbelievable asset to any team. There is a, so it's a fine line between a player who's just difficult and different and dances to the beat of their own drum compared to the genuinely disruptive individual who break, who's an energy sapper, who is a, an unrehabilitated narcissist or unrehabilitatable narcissist. And we need to discern that. And the reality is most of us are not really qualified enough to make that discernment. But for me, the easiest way to do it is actually just to pick up a phone and go and follow their trail all of 10 years back, all the teams they've played in. And if you hear the same story each time, you've probably know, got a fairly good idea. Now, Again, an, another piece is if it's if we're talking about a, a Springbok rugby player who's just arriving, he's a young guy and he's known to be really difficult. He's potentially going to be a Springbok rugby player for six, eight, ten years. It's worth really investing time in seeing if can we get this guy to be a genuine asset, not only on the field but an asset with from a team context that he's a real energizer. In comparison to what I'm talking about, the T20 cricket, where you arrive with the team assembles with f- between five and seven days before the first game is played, and then you've only got a six to eight week season. There is no time to deal with a dickhead. You've actually just got to get rid of the guy straight up front and start off with a clean sh- sheet because, as I said, you've only got five days to pull a team together, and you do not want that disruptive individual to be in that mix. So, so Paddy, I'm going to ask you two. St- I'd love you to share the story around dealing, if you if you're happy to, um, that I've heard you share in a talk around the Yuvraj Singh example at India um, with Gary. And the second thing I want to know is, what do you say to? Actually, maybe just answer, you can just answer yeah. that first, and I'll ask you the next question after. Um, so I'm assuming it's around the football. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So, Yuvraj Singh was. Obviously, he's a highly talented individual. Um, and we were playing football one day as a warm-up. Uh, the physios, are probably in its universal across the cricket world, the physios hate uh, football as a warm-up because they tend to get an ankle injury that they had to rehab twice a season. So we had a very clear rule is no contact. If there's a 50-50 ball, do not contest the ball. So we're playing a, a football game and Yuvraj Singh was is it known to be a bit of a bully boy. Again, I'm not speaking out of turn here, you know. And every time there was a 50-50 ball, he's a good footballer. Um, so when there was a 50-50, he knew the other guy wouldn't contest it. So he contested and he always got away with the ball. And he did this quite a few times and there was a guy opposite him um, 
a young guy on the team was also a good footballer who Yuvraj kept taking the ball off him. This guy realized Yuvi knows what he's doing. I know what I'm doing. So they contested the, this 50-50 ball and the youngster was more agile and a better footballer. So he won the ball off Yuvi a full time, a few times, which as with any bully being shown up in front of their mates, he lashed out and he literally kicked Suresh Rana's legs out from underneath him. He deliberately kicked him. And as he fell, the whole ground went dead silent and we were waiting to see, is this oak going to get up? What damage has been done? It was messy. And fortunately, Suresh got up and he was okay. And there was sort of this dead silence around the ground. And I was standing next to Gary and I don't even remember if I just touched his hand, but just to say, don't do anything. And the game slowly started getting underway after, after about a half a minute or so. And there was actually an Australian fielding coach with us. And he came running over from the other side of the field and he said, Gary, you, you've got to stop this. You've got to pull this up. You've got to pull that individual in and let him know that this is absolutely not what happens. You've got to let him know that. And Gary said, just, just hang on, just, just leave it. And a couple of minutes later, he said, why, why aren't you doing something? Are you scared of this guy? And Gary just said, just leave it. And, Gary knew it was part of our process is he we didn't know what to do about that situation but we knew what not to do which was not to do the typical thing of pulling him in and giving the eight cuck and we left it alone still trying to figure out how we're going to deal with this uh, so and a little bit later Gary went over to him and he was actually working with that left arm spinner Ravindra Jadeja uh, read Singh was and Gary went after you to talk to him after that he was working with this youngster and Gary said to him was the first time he spoke to him since the incident and said you know what Yuvi I noticed you working with a uh, young Rav then helping him out because they're both left arm spinners and he said you're a real leader in this team and you've got a lot of influence and when I see you doing stuff like that with the youngsters it really adds value so I just want to acknowledge that and thank you for helping the youngster and he walked away and later on, we were sitting on the bus. Yuvraj walked onto the bus and he walked, it, almost everyone was on. He walked to the back of the bus and he sat next to MS Dhoni, who was the captain who always sits back right, sat with him for a few minutes. Then he came and he sat next to Suresh, Suresh Raina for a few minutes. And then he came and he sat next to Gary and Gary and I were sitting opposite each other. And Yuvi said to Gary, listen, what I did earlier on the field, I know it's something I've actually done quite a few times before. I know it's something in my, it's something that I just do. I know it doesn't work. And particularly what I did there, it undermines everything that we've been trying to set up in this team. So I'm really, really sorry. I've apologized to Dhoni. I've apologized to Suresh. I really want to apologize to you because it's undermining what you've been working so hard to set up in this team. And I commit to work, working with Paddy to see if I can overcome this thing, this uh, that gets me to do that kind of thing from time to time. So, you know, and again, I go back to when you when you treat someone like an, an adult, like an adult, the funny thing is they tend to respond as an adult. When an adult does something wrong and as a coach, you, you cuck them out like you'd cuck out a child. The funny thing is they tend to then behave like that chastised child who needs to adapt their behavior to make the adult happy. Yes, I, I couldn't... Like, just listening to that, I couldn't think of a more perfect outcome of that whole thing. Yeah. Like, it's, it's unbelievable. I've, uh, having been involved with teams for a long time, I've, I've had one similar experience, just one, but never before have, or, you know, besides that one point, like, I've never had a, a moment like that. I'm, I suppose we've never probably dealt with things like that either. You always feel the need to dive in and correct it straight away. 
Yeah, you see, you, know, you see, Kyle. Like I really believe in, and particularly in a an adult sports team, you want adults to behaving as adults, and adults do take responsibility for their cock ups. They take responsibility for themselves. But when you have an a coach or a leadership that when someone does something wrong, they speak to them like a, a child who's done something wrong, and they get cucked out. You create a dynamic where then when someone does make a mistake, they don't want to own up and say, listen, I'm sorry I made a mistake because they're, they're laying themselves open then to get that, that um, reprimand. So they keep quiet and they wait for the reprimand or hope that it's maybe not seen or ignored. And it's actually interesting that, you know, I really try and build that in the teams that I work with. There's guys, if you make a mistake, don't wait for somebody else to point out. We're all going to make mistakes. And in fact, at the beginning of the season, I, I say to guys, a cricket season, is anyone here worried about dropping a catch? And everyone puts their hands up in, you know, in, in a big game. So I, write, I say, well, I'll write you a guarantee slip that all of you, sometime this season, you will drop a catch. So don't worry about it. I'm guaranteeing you it will happen. And if you're worried about getting hit for four or six when you don't want to, don't worry about it because I'll write you a guarantee slip. It is going to happen. So I'm not concerned about it. And same thing with playing a, a poor shot and getting out when you don't want to get out and the team doesn't need you to get, get out. So let's not worry about those things. But if you make, if you drop a catch or you bowl, of, you get hit for six and you realize that maybe there's something you could have done differently, share that information with a team because it adds to our learning. And you know, part of our thing is we want to have a steeper learning curve than any other teams. And it's interesting, the first few uh, post-match meetings, players actually come back to me now and uh, uh, with information, um, or in fact, early on, and I never realized it. And they would say, you know, I made a mistake, I dropped up, uh, I played a poor shot in the second innings and I got out in the 15th over. So that's a 40-over a game. They get out in over 35, effectively, if we bat second. And the players say to me, I come to that meeting and... I don't hear anything you say about the first half of the game because I'm in the back of my mind. I'm wondering, is he going to point this out? How is he going to point it out? Is he going to show a video? Am I going to get spoken to in front of the team? And then as I get close to that moment, we dice coming to the, the, the 15th over of our innings, the guy's bracing himself to have a response. And then I don't bring it up and we move on. And the guys come to me afterwards eventually and say, you know what? You don't point out what we do wrong, but I'm actually wait. I actually don't listen in that whole meeting because I'm waiting to see what are you going to say about it and trying to figure out how am I going to respond. And the, only after a while do players realize if I've made a mistake, put your hand up, guys. I played a poor shot. I was feeling the pressure. I thought if I went down the wicket and I could hit a six, it would relieve the pressure. But in, in thinking about it afterwards, I probably, I probably panicked. I didn't need to go that early. And if I'm in that situation again next time, and I'm feeling the pressure. I'm just going to knock the ball for one, get to the other side, take a ball or two to chill and get myself back into the game. And I know as soon as someone says that, the first person that says something like that in a team meeting, I will really acknowledge it. And that's the start. It's like almost a match start that starts a fire. And everyone goes, wow, you mean it's okay to do that? Because the bizarre thing is that never happens in teams. And when you get players analyzing their errors and sharing, I made a mistake, number one. Number two, this was my thinking that led to the error, which is the second part. And if I had that over again, number three, this is what I do differently. When players start owning that in a team meeting, the quality of meeting, the quality of bonding, the quality of learning moves to an entirely new level. Yeah, Paddy, uh, you know, having done a fair bit of this work and in, in 
sort of academically as well, I think we know that team learning, or I think you like to call it collective intelligence, is such a vital part of success. Yeah. Um, and actually, in many teams that certainly I've experienced, it's done quite poorly. Um, you go into these quick-fire environments, you know, like you said, an eight- to ten-week competition. How do you create a rapid-fire learning environment that transcends cliches and socially acceptable answers um, that I think could be used in sports and in the the business world? Okay. Your question is the answer. The, 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 you do it by genuinely asking the question, how do we create a rapid fire learning environment that transcends anything else? And to me, it's just how do my, I, I use the other guys in, in, in the same competition as a frame of reference. How do we, and I don't try and say, let's try and invent something that a rocket that goes to the moon when we've never been to the moon. How do we learn 20% faster than any other team? I don't have the answer. But the question is critical, is how do we do that? And I arrive with that question and I ask the question and we interrogate that question. And if you're genuinely open and you're passionate about having that question answered, the answer sits within the team. So the question leads to the answer. I don't have it. I mean, I'll give you an example that I cite. So it's, it's, it's amazing. So every single professional cricket team in the world before every single game have a bowlers meeting. Now, I've sat in enough bowlers meetings around the world, and I'm not that interested in bowling. I don't know that much about bowling, but I'm as bored as all hell. So when I became a head coach, I got the bowlers into the first bowlers meeting. I said, and there were some really senior campaigners there who'd played upwards of 10 years of international cricket. And I said, guys, first thing, I want you to tell me the best bowlers meeting you've ever sat in in terms of its value in preparing you and its interest factor. So value and interest. Out of 10, what's the best meeting you've ever sat in? And the highest, I've asked that with every team I've coached, every, the highest number I've ever come up with is six, but it's normally three to four is stock standard out of 10 in terms of value and interest. So the first thing I say to the guys is I am not going to sit through a meeting and have you guys sit through a meeting that's going to, if we, if we do have the best meeting ever, it's going to be six out of 10. Should we be doing it? Is the meeting then worth having? And across the board, the guys say, no, not the way we've had them. So the question then is, okay, so is it possible to have a bowlers meeting that adds more value than six out of 10? And the, not always. Sometimes the guys say, yes. I say, okay, so let's talk about that. This meeting is about designing meetings that actually really work for you. And I get guys to talk about what really works for them. And it's interesting about... About In about half the teams, we still have the bowlers meeting. It's much shorter and we're very clear what we talk about. And that's what the players talk about, what they say was useful for them to talk about. In the other half the teams, or other half the times, the nature of the players in that particular bowling unit, they all pre- happy to do their own preparation, sit with the analysts themselves, and they've got very different ways of preparing. And that's often the problem is someone wants just a quick fire way of preparing just some quick reminders. And then you get some players who really want to go into detail with every one of the opponents that they're uh, bowling to. But what happens is the coach arrives and he's got his preferred style of bowlers meeting and they impose their style 
So we're going to look at every owner of the opposition or we're going to do this or we're going to do that. And it's assuming that I as coach know what's going to work for everybody. So, um, Tom, when you ask players what really works, it's down to meet, it's down to practices, you know, at the end of a practice. Um, one thing, I think the most valuable thing and the quickest way of learning that I've come across, and it's, it's so simple, it, uh, I wish it sounded a whole lot more clever. But at the end of a, a practice, I'll get players, just give them a piece of paper and a pen, and I'll ask them to write down, again, a score of 1 to 10, and I'll pick, pick a particular criteria. It might be the in, intensity of the practice. It might be how valuable was the practice, how interesting was it. Write on it just a 1 to 10. 10 out of 10 was it was perfect for me. Write the number down, drop it in a hat. So it's completely anonymous. It's real time. It's live. Um, and I do that with meetings at the end of a meeting. Guys, in terms of how valuable is it, just write on a piece of paper and put in a hat. It gives me immediate feedback as to how we're doing. And what, I've, what, I, what I personally do, I don't necessarily recommend it for everybody, but I get them to write that down. And then what I do is I write it up. I get one of the players to actually call it out to me and I write it up on a board in front of them. And sometimes the challenge here is it's so nice. It's nice as a coach if it's all eights, nines, and tens. Then we feel as a coach, yes, this is lacquer and there's easy feedback. But when you get twos, threes, and fours, it can be quite difficult. But for me, I, I love it. The first once or twice I got those two, threes, and fours, I felt really awkward. And I'm glad I read it myself and not in front of the players. And I learned to deal with my awkwardness and then actually see it as like, these guys are giving me invaluable feedback. So by writing it up in front of them and saying, okay, guys, there's two, threes, and fours here. It, it's so exciting. It means there's really is room for improvement. And that's what we're here to do. We're here to improve. So break up into smaller groups, uh, pen and paper, one person take notes and talk about how can we make whatever this thing was, whether it's a meeting, whether it's a practice, whether it's a whatever it is. And I analyze all aspects of the campaign using that process. Do it in front of players and then I say, just get one spokesman from your group to give feedback. So players know if they're not happy with something, they don't have to tell me directly. Because one of the things that we really lack, I believe, as support staff and even leadership in teams, the, 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 the captain and the team leadership, is we lack decent feedback. Players just suck up. If they don't like something, they, don't, they generally don't tell us. I've seen coaches lose a change room because they're not getting the feedback. The players are all talking about what the coach is doing wrong, but the information is not getting to the coach. Mm. So that process is an amazing process. And then when you get the feedback, the thing then to do is what are you going to do when you disagree what the players are saying? Are you going to then employ a coach-centered approach? Say, well, I've listened to you guys, but actually we're not going to do it like that. Also, okay, you guys have spoken and there's agreement within the team that actually if we did it like this, it would be better. And you go with the player's approach. For me, that there's gold in that. And the players really see that my voice counts. And if I suggest something and the majority of people agree that it's best for the team and it's going to move us closer to our goal, which is obviously winning the tournament, that the coach is going to go with it, then you start creating an environment where you genuinely are harnessing the intelligence of the team because players are moved to share something to make the environment better. Mm. Paddy, I know um, I know this is a, a sort of a priorities thing in, in team environments, but I can imagine what a lot of coaches are going to say to you: "Where on earth do I find time to have? Uh, you know, I'm already struggling to fit these team meetings in, and then you want me to go review these team meetings every single time we have a team meeting. How? I mean, realistically, how long is the process? And 
you know, as you've explained it, I understand the quality of it. I understand the feedback that's necessary for, you know, for the coach yeah. to be able to, to, to improve. So it sort of makes, it makes sense and justifies it there. But I know, I know in South Africa, what's going to happen is, is South African coaches are going to say, I just don't have time for this okay. kind of thing, you know? Okay. A perfectly valid question. So what I would, if, if there was a template, what I'd suggest is after the third, say it's a post-match debrief, after the third one, analyze it and you can analyze it by just getting the players to write a piece of paper and walking out the room so that would take about all of about seven seconds and then the coach then the coach you decide what you want to do with with the answers you get at a practice same thing at the end of the uh, end of the week three so people have got used to your style and your way of operating you analyze the practice Uh, again it's a seven second exercise if you want to Get players to debrief it, go and and go away and come back with information. That's probably about a 15-minute process. I would only do that once after week three. After that, what you can do is three weeks later, say, guys, let's just quickly check in and write your answers down. And they leave the room. You don't have to take time of going through it. So I wouldn't do that whole exercise. That exercise really, it, one, it gives you good information. And two, what it does, it, it demonstrates in action, your openness as coach to receive feedback and change what you're doing to make things work for the for the collective. What it then does is another place that's incredibly valuable. So players get used to this being able to give their uh, feedback in terms of a number and know that the coach uses it, values it, and uses it as information. So a great place, um, and I'm not sure how it happens in rugby, but certainly in cricket, during fielding practices, that normally happens at the end of practice. Players are tired. The only way to practice fielding properly is at 100% intensity. Very seldom does all the players have 100% to give. So fielding practices are often low intensity. The quality is low. You're wasting your time. So what happens then? The coach pulls people in and gives the lecture about how important fielding in uh, is. And we've got to do it at 100% intensity. And you're on at 100% intensity. And you're, you're professionals. And, you, and you're not acting as professionals. And, and you, you know the story. You've heard that talk. I pull players in and I go... Okay, guys, just quickly whip around. Out of uh, 1 to 10, what is our level of intensity now? And I want every player just to quickly go around. And it's chop-chop. And there's always two or three players who are 10s. In cricket, the Stephen Smiths and the Ben Stokes, they're always at 10 out of 10. But there's other guys, 7, 6, 7, 8, 7, 6, and they go, okay, so we've heard. So we're about between 7s and 9s. Are we happy to continue with fielding practice at this? Every time the players say no. So no, it's not, they're not, there's no value. So I say, okay, 10 more minutes of fielding practice, and even 10 more minutes. What number can we all stay up in terms of intensity above for the next 10 minutes? And always the players say nine, bizarrely. And I say, okay, tell you what, let's make it eight. I would have said nine. <laughs> yeah. And they all say nine. Can I say, and I drop it, say eight. Can we all be above eight for the next 10 minutes? And I look around, they go, yes. That whole exercise of quickly assessing is it okay what can we do an agreement takes two minutes it's just the same amount of time as a good old eight cup that the coach gives the players that they are too low but they have now taken responsibility for assessing themselves and giving themselves a target so if they're not holding at eights i can just remind them you know are you doing are you are you giving us an eight but the funny thing is i've never had to remind players they go back and they're all do exactly what they say they'll do for the next 10 minutes. No. Paddy, you... you, you uh, go, 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 No, no, just, I was just saying, I, I see now that obviously the speed of the exercise can be done really quickly. I, I think 
maybe where the value comes in is, is actually what the coach does with that information. I think that's, you know, that's mm. the most important part. If you don't do anything and make changes, it becomes coaches' rhetoric. Players don't buy into it. They don't trust it. And as a coach, when you do that, you have no credibility, to go back to the word we spoke right up front. You have to, you have to make the change. A little technique that, that I learned, Paddy, that, that's worked really nicely is in meetings to create a half time and you just ask the question, so what's gone well in that first half of the meeting and what can we do differently to double the value of the second half? Yeah. Um, the other thing, Kyle, is using those red and green cards. So you create some acceptable behaviors and values in your team. And if I see uh, one that's contrary to what we agreed upon, I give you a red card with some constructive feedback. And if I give you a green constructive criticism, and if I give you a green card, I say, I just want to affirm that behavior. It's just little things that yeah. you can do that make it quite quickly. I wanted to... I wanted to um, so Paddy and I, Carl, uh, spoke many years ago at a, at an uh, like a series of talks, and I remember I um I did the first my first talk with Paddy there, and I think I got a bit intimidated by Paddy, and I was speaking last after him, and I was all over the show. And we, we were sharing the flight back and we sat at, at PE Airport and you gave me some really good feedback. And then we spoke again in Johannesburg. Um, I, I'm happy to out myself. I think I was a little bit hungover. Um, we'd won a trophy the night before. and <laughs> But I don't think that was the reason the reason we did well. But but Paddy's feedback was so useful um, to allow me to free up and enable me to, to talk much better. And then you gave me feedback after that. I just think to demonstrate a little bit to people who are listening to this, let's just look at the 45 minutes that we've been chatting now. What do you think, what do we think that we've done well in this conversation to add value to people listening? And what do you think we could have done differently to make it more valuable or maybe in the last 10 minutes to make it more valuable for people? So from my side is I didn't receive any... um, sort of agenda or questions so I wasn't quite sure where we wanted to take ideally this conversation to go and what information and content we wanted to cover that we felt would add most value to the listeners so I don't don't, sometimes that can be over restrictive but for me if I was a little bit clearer and I didn't ask that from you guys so what is done I'm aware that when I've given answers I'm not quite sure which direction and what message to go and maybe I've spoken a bit much or slightly missed something that's really useful so for me it's probably a little bit of a lack of structure that, that has caused me maybe to overspeak and um and sort of drag on a little bit but so that's and that's but I, th- I think the fluidity and the 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 connection and just the three guys having a good conversation that's i've been very comfortable and felt it very easy and it's flowed and i've really enjoyed that part of it and Paddy, if you were to ask one question of Kyle and I that you think would shift our ability to run an even greater podcast, what might that question be? Uh, well, it would be to ask what your questions would be or what your question would be. You've obviously got 19 episode experiences now and you've probably got some feedback and got a sense of what is the stuff that works and what doesn't. And maybe it's just to keep directing it sort of a little, not not the whole thing, but a little bit more towards what is the stuff that in your experience has really worked. So you direct me sort of in that direction so that I know I'm sort of also with you in keeping sort of delivering on your listeners um, 
why, why, why are they tuning in? You know, and we want to be delivering the answers and the value to them uh, so they've got an hour well spent. Mm, great. Thank you. So, Paddy, you, 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 I really appreciate that. So, thank you very much. Um, you have asked a lot of questions to a lot of people. Can you, I think a lot of leaders still believe that their massive influence is going to come through a statement or through a speech. Can you give us an actual anecdote of where you've used questions really effectively in some of the teams you've worked with? Okay. <laughs> I, I sometimes <laughs> chuckle about this, this one, Tom, but and, uh, you'll appreciate it. So, so I went, as you know, I went, I spent a lot of time as a mental coach before I then stepped into the role of head coach. And there's a sort of, in the head coaching space and that sort of T20 space, amongst quite a few players, there's this this idea that Paddy knows exactly what to say to a guy at the right time to get the best out of him. And the reason he can do that is because he's a mental conditioning coach and he can, he's like, read, can read minds. people's minds. So and I just chuckle about that. It's like, so the, the, the reality is, yes, I do know what to say to different people and I know when to say it. And, I want to flip and give away my secret here, how I can read minds. <laughs> Is it the beginning of the season? Uh, in casual conversations, it's uh, definitely not an informal time. It's in the change room or at breakfast or walking around. I say to someone, just like, I don't really know you that well, but if I knew you really well, what, what if, and you, and you were, you were really nervous and under pressure, what would I notice? How would I notice that you were under pressure or you're feeling a bit nervous? Because obviously nerves, pressures, it's probably the one place where, where that impacts players' performance the most in big games. So players will tell me. And the interesting thing is there's actually a theme there. So extroverts talk more. Quieter people talk less. Funny people make more jokes. So people sort of tend to do more of what they naturally do. So guys will say, the extrovert will say, well, you'll just find me, I'll just be talking all the time. So I go, okay. And if I was, what is the cleverest thing I could say to you in that moment that would really be valuable? And the guy would say to me, he would just, just walk up and, you know, probably just touch me and say, you know, it's just a game. Just go out there and express yourself that's what that says. Just a game. Remind me, it's just a game, and to go out there and express myself. I go, oh, cool. Yeah, that sounds makes sense. Pretty common thing. And then I, I just stitch that into a conversation. Three games later, the guy's going out to bat, and I see, he's, and I know there's likely to be pressure on him. So I'm looking at those guys who are going into bat next, and I see the guys talking a whole lot. So I walk up to him. I put my arm and hand on his shoulder, and I say, just, just come to remind. It's just a game. Go out there and express yourself. You've done the preparation. You're good to go. And the guy goes, wow, Flippy said the right thing at the right time. So if you want to know what somebody, what is best for somebody, ask. So yes, I worked with this guy, Nathan, Nathan Coulton-Isle, um, in the in the IPL, Australian fast bowl. He had a particularly bad game. And he was sitting in the change room and I could see he was really down on himself. But it was like the second or third game. I didn't know Nathan at all. And I really wasn't sure what to do. And I went over to him and I said, listen, Nathan, we haven't worked together. Obviously, today wasn't ideal. Do you want to chat about it? Or should I just we just leave it alone for now? And he said, no, I appreciate that. Um, I'm happy. I'll analyze it and I'll come and chat to you if I feel there's a need to chat to you about anything. And I turned around and walked away. And I just thought, as I came to know him, I realized the worst thing I could have done then 
was as coach go and sit there and analyze his performance and try and give him some really useful information because he was crystal clear do not bug me now i'm thinking it through i'll figure it and if anything i can't figure i'll come and ask you and i just wonder how many coaches have made that mistake of talking to someone when they really don't want to and the player doesn't feel comfortable to say coach do you want to just leave me alone for now please yeah, well, I think that's a fascinating one. I, I, I am not exactly the same, but something I read, there's an Australian football coach, uh, AFL coach called Paul Roos. So spelt like Paul Roos, but Paul, mm-hmm. Paul Roos, and he's been massively successful. And I read his book and he said he just binned the team talks before the game because different people need different things. And what he did is he would just go to each individual and just remind him of something that maybe they'd spoken about in the week or that he needed from them. Um, just in a, in, in a, and you just walk around the changing very casually and talk to each guy, which I thought was quite a quite an interesting and not revolutionary, but actually in many senses it probably is quite revolutionary yeah. because I still believe in the world of sport there's still a lot of one to many rather than one to yeah. one because one to many is easier and it's quicker from a time point of view. You yeah. know? I mean, Carl, how how often did a, a team talk before a game really make an, a, a significant difference to your mind space and preparation going onto the field Com- from before the team talk to after? Yeah, I mean, listen, so we, we had a slightly different approach where, where most of the team talks, because we have six of them over the weekend, were tactically based or strategically based. It wasn't, there, were, there weren't very many rah-rah talk about changing your mindset. We, we learned very early on of the, the individual capacity and, and how people motivate themselves in a very individual way. So there wasn't, there is no way for you can, you can have a sort of a generic conversation amongst 12 to 14 people and try to get them on the same page. We, th- what, what we did say is that you're a professional and that your mind space is your own territory that you look after. The, the strategic point of view is something that we can get on the same page about and we can understand the plan together. But there's nothing that I can do to, to walk around the change room to each person. I just don't have the energy as well as having to look after my own uh, yeah. you know, mindset for the game. So yeah, it's, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, I've I've maintained that if, if if a coach gets up to try and motivate a team, with the what the coach is actually saying, what's driving them is is the coach is saying, I don't think you motivated, so I'm going to step up to motivate you. Uh, and if you need to motivate players before a game as a coach, it's, I think you haven't done your job, because players should yeah. naturally be ready to play. In fact, in cricket, I. I, I've used in the, in the T20. I use the, the pre-game team talk. I do have one of those, and it's for a very different reason, though. <clears throat> it is because we've got a lot of youngsters and senior players, and you've got a team that is sort of newly put together. I will start at the first game of the season, and I'll find the youngest and least experienced player, and I'll ask them to lead the team talk. Number one, because I don't believe anything you say in, in the team talk before a game really carries much water anyway, so it's not that. But number two, I want to send a message to that individual in the team that everybody is equally important, that the youngest Oak can give a team talk, and I want him to know that the catch you take on the field is not more important than a catch that a senior player like a Mike Hussey or Jacques Cullis takes. A run that you score is not less valuable than Jacques Cullis's run, and the wicket you take is no less valuable than Jacques Cullis's wicket. So everybody has a part to play, and that's and then the second game I'll find the second youngest player and I'll ask them, please will you lead the team talk? And it just it's an opportunity to stand up, to feel that part of it, to take a lead role really early on. And I'll coach the guy a little bit if he wants to, you know, I'll say, is there anything you want me to help you with around, you know, what you do? 
and yeah and then and I go six, systematically through it and the first 11 game every single game a different person will give the team talk yeah I think I think we also tried you know with similar things on trying to find ways to engage as many of the young players as possible as quickly as possible just to remind them that like your your voice is, uh, has equal grounding to, to everybody else around yeah. you and, and your insight is valuable and that's what sometimes I think we miss with young players is how insightful they can be and how different their perspectives can be but we we don't we don't maybe empower them to to give that uh, that insight early enough yeah and that goes back to tom's question earlier you know how do you create that team that really learns so much faster than other teams it's to recognize as carl said that the youngsters really do have value and then you've got to figure out how do we create an environment where the youngsters feel comfortable enough to bring their value to the team. A new player to the team sees stuff that players who've been in that team for five years don't see anymore. So they really do have value. And that's the question is how do we harness this intelligence, this feedback and really use it and create an environment where players actually moved to give it. And you know what, on the other side, the flip side, you'd, I have had one or two occasions where that spills over into some guy who just constantly needs airtime and offers crap flipping input. And, you know, I'd rather deal with that than have a great piece of input being spoken about in the pub between three players and it doesn't land in the team, it just lands in the bar counter. Yeah. I must say, it's interesting. I am... Um uh, uh, being a head coach of a team at the moment, I uh, got some. I got a WhatsApp from one of my players the day after a match where we won, um, and and I remember the team talk quite well because I I went a little bit out the box. Um, well, firstly I got a bit emotional in the talk, um, like v- quite visibly emotional, uh, and secondly I got them to start singing something that I, I won't repeat. Um, but uh, the, the 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 player messaged me afterwards and he said experienced player very experienced player and he said to me I just want to say that I think your team talk was a large reason why we won the game and I really really appreciate it and um, that that's actually not a that's actually not a little backpack for me because it was cool it was a great bit of feedback and, and maybe it was a good talk but if I think about it there were there were probably 12 games that we played in the competition and like that was the only bit of positive feedback I got <laughs> probably tells you that my team talks are shit or not necessary you know but um, yeah I think it I think it is a personal I think the learning that I got from you Paddy is that it's a great opportunity to empower other people and that actually um you, you, you are subconsciously telling them they can't motivate themselves. And it came to a, a piece that I heard recently on a masterclass where someone said, if I give you advice, I'm unconsciously telling you that I don't believe you can solve your problems for yourself. Yeah. Rather than asking a really high quality question or presenting an observation, which I thought was quite nice. And yeah. I would imagine is backing up yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. And it's interesting, Tom, just to go back to those 12 team talks. One of the things we really lack as, as leaders, and in fact, all leaders, is, um, is that feedback. You might have been giving unbelievable team talks. But the funny thing is, players don't come back and they, they don't tell us that was really good. And they don't come back and tell us that really wasn't good. And, you know, it really got driven home to me sitting in a, a Pakistan Super League one year. All eight teams were staying in the same hotel. Um, and a lot of the foreign players... Be, would would gather together actually in our room and our team room because our team room had by far the best alcohol supply and um 
we'd sit there late into the night and I'd listen to these senior players and, and, and captains. You know, Brendan McCullum was, was always there. Um, Owen Morgan was there. Shane Watson, senior players. Cullis was there. And I'd listen. I'd be sitting with my assistant coach. We'd just be quietly having our, our single malt. And I'd be listening with one ear to these conversations. And it blew our minds how often these senior players sat speaking about their coaches. And it went on night after night. And one of the most common conversations that were had was about their coaches, about some stuff that went well, but a lot of stuff that didn't go well. And that was something for me was a massive turning point to go, I wonder what my players are saying, not my players, the players on my team are saying behind my back. And that's when I realized I need to create some method to get this information. If I'm doing something wrong, I don't want to do something that undermines a player's experience. I want to create the best possible experience they can have because then I know they're going to deliver the best possible results. And if I'm doing something that really works and I don't know it, I might question and then change it up a little bit to think, well, that, I'm not really getting the feedback, so let me try something different. And I go away from something that works. So that was my real um, aha moment is that I have to create a way to get this feedback because the feedback is invaluable to make sure that the ship is on course. And it's bizarre in the professional sports world that fe- so little feedback gets back to the coach. It's, is it the player's fault? Is it the coach's fault? Or it's just the system is set up, I think, from previously that the coach speaks at the players and the player's job is to listen. And if the player says something the coach doesn't like, a player just needs to do that once and get a, a reprimand for it and he's going to shut up and never do it again. Paddy, this is, I, I, I promised an hour and I've, t- t- I've taken a little bit more. So I, I really appreciate it. I want to just ask the last question that we, we always ask. And it's, it's uh, by design quite ambiguous. Um, if you were to have three people as part of your dream team, who would they be and why? As part of a dream, as in playing or coaching staff? Pa- Paddy Upton's team of, of people. In whatever the first thing that comes to your mind, who would those three people be? So, three people in my dream team, it'll be from my personal experience of them. So, strangely, the one is a person that's hard, barely heard about in the cricket world. Is an, It was an assistant coach that I had for three years in the Australian Big Bash League, a guy by the name of Sean Bradstreet. Played a few games for New South Wales, but just someone with unbelievable in emotional intelligence, uh, very good with people, but unbelievably organized, which for me is important because I'm not the most organized and detailed person. I prefer to be allowed to be creative and spontaneous. So, so he brings EQ and attention to detail that you don't often find in the same person. Rahul Dravid would be the other one that I've absolutely thoroughly enjoyed working with. Just a a professor, a genius in terms of the game of cricket, but seldom met somebody who is so open to learning, yet he's re- achieved such a high level, but he just constantly asks questions. So, and the third one would be, um, sure, that I've worked with, uh, I go Mike Hussey, uh, and a, because he's just such a lacquer oak. And when you have lacquer oaks, it spreads the the vibe that actually I, I really do believe in. You create a group of lacquer oaks and you just be lacquer and 
it creates, it helps create a lacquer environment and that just makes everything comfortable, free-flowing, easy, and easy to have these different conversations if you know this oak's a lacquer oak and he's not going to bite my head off and not got a hidden agenda. So that's important is to just have lacquer oaks in your team because you can have those tough conversations then. That's awesome. An organized person, a genius, a technical genius who's willing to learn and a flippin' lacquer good oak. Yeah. Um, awesome. <laughs> Paddy, thank you. Carl, thank you very much. Anything from your side, Carl? No, it's always always good to chat to you, Paddy, and uh, it was as stimulating as the first time I met you, and I'm, I'm really excited for whenever we get to catch up again. So thank you so much for your time. Awesome. Thank you guys very much for inviting me onto the podcast. Thanks, Paddy. Have a great rest of your holiday, and um, yeah, I look forward to catching up with you uh, again in the new year. Thanks so much. Lekker. Sure. Uh, Carl, thank you for that. I, I found that... Um, Obviously, Paddy's a guy who works sort of in a similar space to me, um, and I feel as trailblaze. So I um, I really enjoyed listening to him and some of his thoughts. And having heard him many times, I still got new learnings. What was your What was your experience there? Yeah, I am. I, um, I having been involved with professional sports for a while, you, you do get a sense of what is done and done and done the whole time. And it's just really refreshing to listen to somebody who takes a different point of view and takes a different approach to so many of the 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 same issues that we deal with on a day-to-day basis and it's it's awesome to hear of the success that's come of that and the desire to keep learning and keep innovating in that space that where where so many people feel like they've got the answers to to every every question available he uh he keeps looking for something Mm. brand new and i suppose what's more important is that he he applies a very individual and unique perspective to to each environment that he enters mm, mm, no 100 percent. i i thought for my probably my biggest takeaway was the concept of feedback um you know he spoke about it towards the end as well like are we giving each other enough feedback regularly whether it's positive or or corrective um or affirmative or corrective to ensure that we're getting better and better um and i think that was probably my biggest takeaway from today amongst many and i love these stories i love the you've Singh story um and um and uh, and yeah, so thank you very much. And, and, and we hope that uh, you all enjoyed it out there. Uh, please make sure to follow us on Instagram at the.leadingconversation. Uh, we'll keep sharing insights from our guests and uh, we look forward to having you next week. Cheers. And of, and of course, any, uh, any feedback you can give us would be greatly appreciated. Spot on. <laughs> Spot on. Cheers, Carl. Thanks, man. Bye.